0: Thank you. It's Friday, October 9th, I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, the feeling that everyone has their life figured out except for me, that was the starting point for Frederick Bachmann's new book, Anxious People. Our Gina Chung discusses this hybrid mystery comedy book from the acclaimed Swedish author. Then a debate is canceled, the president's health is still a mystery, an executive order stifling free expression on U.S. US campuses are Suzanne Nossel Field's Tough Questions on Free Speech. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on the Pen Pod. Anxious People, our Gina Chung has a book conversation with author Frederick Bachman.
1: Frederick Bachman is the number one New York Times bestselling author of A Man Called Uva. My grandmother asked me to tell you she's sorry. Britt Marie was here, Bear Town, and several other books. His books are published in more than 40 countries. He lives in Stockholm with his wife and two children, and he joins us today to talk about his new book, Anxious People. Thank you so much for being with us on the Pen Pod today, Frederick.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I I, I always enjoy the introduction in the in the US of the number one New York Times best-selling author because once <laughs> once you're that if you're that for a week, then you're that for life. And I like yes. that. Yes, it's, uh, it's you just have to make it once and then 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 that's your bio forever. Uh, <laughs> I very much enjoy that.
1: Yeah, it's no it's it's quite the achievement. Um, yeah. so I'm so excited to talk to you about um, your new book and the title alone, you know, and the premise of course, um, anxious people. It feels especially fitting for our times, you know, certainly with um, ongoing current events and the pandemic, but also because of, you know, a lot of things like the advent of social media, which has led to additional scrutiny perhaps and feelings of anxiety for all of us. How did you decide to write this book and why did you decide to make anxiety the focus of the story?
2: Well, I'm 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 interested in uh, I mean, I everything I write, I write because I I'm interested in emotions. That's the the, the that's my I think all writers have uh, areas uh, of the human experience that they are mostly interested in and for me it's i'm very interested why ordinary people do stupid things based on the way they're feeling about something uh that that's the premise of all my writing and i'm not very interested in extraordinary people i'm interested in ordinary people um i don't write books about know world politicians or astronauts or rock stars uh, because they don't interest me as much as the people next door who i get into a fight with all mm-hmm. the time over mundane things and um, um so so i had the, i had this idea that i was going to try to write something about uh the things that everyday people go around carrying that that feeling that everybody else has their life figured out except for me Mm -hmm. everyone else knows what they're doing all the time except for me i'm the only one just tumbling around in darkness and uh so i had that idea and i had this other idea that i i i wanted to write a comedy because i had written two uh, pretty pretty dark and, and heavy stories, uh, Beartown and Us Against You. And I wanted to write a straight comedy, but I also wanted to make it a closed room mystery. I wanted to make it a, like a classical puzzle mystery. Uh-huh. And I wanted to see if I could do all those things at once. Uh, because sometimes you... Uh, Sometimes you you need a stupid idea to get yourself going, and uh, so that's (laughs) what I that's what I try to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think, and you know that thing that you just said, where you know the feeling that everyone has it, you know, figured out except for me, and I'm tumbling alone in darkness. I feel like that's definitely a feeling that we can all relate to, and it's so interesting that anxiety is so isolating, but it's something that you know no one is without, obviously. and I'd also love to know, you know, what was the experience of writing this book like since you mentioned, you know, anxiety is something that, you know, we're all familiar with and that, you know, it's something that interests you. Did it feel cathartic or was it challenging at all trying to channel the anxiety of the characters?
2: No, it's never cathartic. <laughs> <Regretfully>. <laughs> I I wish it was, I think, but I think <laughs> if, if it's, if I ever reach that point where I feel at the end of writing a book that this was cathartic, then you know then maybe i'm done <laughs> then maybe the the <laughs> i i don't need to write anymore uh it's um and it's always challenging it's supposed to be challenging i mean if it's i always uh i share an office with another writer who's called niklas nattogdag um also mm-hmm. a swedish writer he wrote a novel called 1793 um uh, it's published on the same publishing house as, as me in the U.S. And uh, that's been a real blessing for me because I, you know, for the last 10 years, w- our careers have kind of followed each other. And um, so I have someone to talk to about the writing process all, all of the time, which I've come to figure out that a lot of writers don't. And a lot of writers... When they hear about this relationship, they're really envious because oh, do you you have someone who gets gets what the hell you're doing because oh. it's very hard. It's really it's really hard. It it I mean it's it's I don't consider it a real job. I consider it, you know, a weird a weird way of tricking people into letting you support yourself by <laughs> making stuff up all day long. And it's mm-hmm. very hard to discuss with other people, but 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 since I have Niklas here, we can always have that discussion. And one of the things that we keep coming back to all of the time, he's written two novels, I've written six, I think, uh, and three novellas. Uh, and we keep coming back to this all the time that as soon as you're sitting there by your desk and it comes. And everything feels like it's too easy, then it's it's probably not really good. Mm. Um, as soon as you write something, you know, oh, I've written written three chapters here, you, you, you know, everything is just flowing. Uh-huh. Then, you know, most of the time we go back to those chapters and at a later point and rewrite them because we figure out that oh, it's because I didn't give my, I didn't give anything of myself. In these chapters. I didn't put enough of myself into this. So, you know, they're decent chapters, but that's all they're ever gonna be. Um, Mm -hmm. Because most of the things that I have learned about writing is that if it's not hard for me and if I don't feel anything while writing, uh, then you're not. You're probably not going to feel anything while reading. So it's supposed to be challenging. That's the mm. whole. That's the whole point.
1: Yeah, um, that that's a really great point. Um, um, it reminds me of. I feel like there are some. I have some writing friends who, you know, there's this misconception I think about writing where it's like it's supposed to be. You know, you sit down and these beautiful sentences come out and you know you just keep doing that and you have to wait for the right moment and but so often it's it's not the case right it's like sitting alone at your desk like you said and you know feeling like well it's just me alone making stuff up in my head <laughs> that hopefully yeah, other it, people can enjoy
2: yeah and i think i mean i'm not i'm not one of the writers who will tell you that oh it's Writing is pain and struggle and, and uh, you know, because I love writing. I do it because I love it. The day mm-hmm. that I don't love it anymore, I'm probably not going to do it. Um, I don't think I could, you know, give anything this much if I didn't love it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's like, uh, I think it's like running or playing an instrument, or doing something, doing anything that, to be good at it, it requires you to keep challenging yourself. It it requires you to keep doing what's hard. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if you're a runner, and you run the same distance every day at the same time, um, you're never going to get better. I mean, uh-huh. you're you're just going to be a decent runner, and that's the. So you have to. I mean, you love running, you 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 can't get enough of running. But sometimes you also have to push yourself. You have to push yourself to run faster, harder, um, to be better at it. And uh, uh-huh. and it's the same thing with writing. It's it's. I mean, it's supposed to be joyful, and and you gotta love it. But you also have to write on all the days when it's not fun, uh, mm-hmm. because you will have days of inspiration. Everybody, everybody does. You 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 know you you will have days when when things are going really well, and you feel like I'm writing something really good here. But that's usually to me. Uh, that's the award. That's the reward you get for all the days when you sucked And mm-hmm. you know all the days where you sat down and just and you worked and you worked and you worked and you worked and you felt like at the end of the day you felt like maybe i have three decent sentences here mm-hmm. uh, but maybe then maybe that's it maybe that you have three good sentences and maybe the next day all of a sudden those three sentences something just clicks and then you know just how to finish it and and and, and off you go Uh, But but it's, uh, um, yeah, it's supposed to be challenging. It's supposed to be hard.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, One thing I'm really interested in when it comes to, you know, um, writing and really just that initial kind of draft phase when you're kind of creating the story sort of out of thin air. Maybe you have an idea or an image that you're working from, but, you know, it's it's very early stages. Um, I'm always interested in how, you know, different writers conceive of the characters that they end up writing and keeping in the book. Um, And one thing I really loved about Anxious People is that it's, you know, it's kind of an ensemble novel in a lot of ways. There's there's a host of characters who are all kind of dealing with their own anxieties or regrets in their lives. So I wanted to ask you, do you see these characters in any way as being, you know, maybe a reflection in some ways of contemporary Swedish society or of people that you've known or come across in your life?
2: I don't know if they're... reflection of the swedish society i can't really answer that i think someone someone on the outside needs to answer that but i think Mm uh because i i I mean of course i mean i've grown up in sweden and swedish um of course that you know the society that i I live in is of course going to be reflected in my writing um uh And, you know, there are always going to be small things that would, I mean, I've never, I I don't think I've ever written in a novel like this takes place in Sweden. Um, Usually I don't even tell you what city it takes place in. Usually Swedes don't even know where this takes place because I like like you doing the casting of the place and the environment. And I, I like you to build the scenery in your head mm-hmm. because I think your imagination will do a much better job than me telling you everything. Um, I do the same thing with characters. I don't tell you, I very rarely tell you what a character looks like. I tell you how that character, who, who that character is and, and things that they do and you build your, you build your view of them around that. Um, but I, I mean, most of my characters, the way they, the way they come about usually is I, I tend to answer that question is people always ask like, oh, is this based on a real person? And I say, well, all characters are based on real persons. Uh, that mm-hmm. That's, you know, because they, I want my characters to be human beings. So I based them on human beings. And, but. One character is not based on one real person. It's usually like orange juice. It takes a lot of oranges to make one glass of juice. It usually takes, <laughs> you know, it could take 20 real people to make one good character um, because you borrow bits and pieces from different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and that's how the characters come to me. And And then I have little tricks that I do once in a while to make them real to me because a character is just a character until i feel it's a person when i start thinking about the character as a human being then i'm heading someplace then it's something and then because if i have real emotions about this human being that i'm writing about then you will have real emotions about that human being you won't feel oh it's a character it's just there to it's just there so the story can bounce around between them um and uh, I, so I just have these people living in my head for a long time until I feel like all they're real human beings now. And that's when they you know that's when things really start happening to me. And it, mm-hmm. whenever I write a story, this story was not an exception. Whenever I write a story, I always have way more characters to begin with than I do in the actual book. I always take characters out. As oh, I'm writing, uh-huh. I always have this idea with, you know, if there's seven characters in the book at the end, then I probably had 20 to begin with. But 13 of them fell off because I felt, oh, this is, this is just a character. This is not mm-hmm. a real human being to me. This is this is a character that I put here just so I could move the story forward. And that never works. You know, that that's always... Um, it, it never feels real to me, and then it won't feel real to you. So I have to just keep the people that I care about. Uh, and, and then I have little tricks to do that. You know, one of the tricks that I tell aspiring writers when they, when they ask me is, you know, I, I tend to give a character something from a person that I really care about. Like mm-hmm. a little thing, like a little mannerism or a little habit that someone does. Like, I, you know, if there's someone I I really like who has a certain a certain word that they always use, like a certain phrase they always come back to, or a certain thing that annoys them, like in a funny way that I always laugh at. Like, like I I, I I'm always amused by how much this annoys you, like people who scream at the news. <laughs> uh, and if I have a person in my life, like, oh, you're, you're a really calm person, except for when you're driving a car, because then you're a raging lunatic. Uh, and then I'll, I'll use that. I'll, I'll, I'll take that and I'll give that to a character. And then a small piece of that person that I love is in that character. And that will make that character real to me. That will make that character someone I care about and feel the need to defend.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And
2: that's my way of of um, that's my way of making characters into real people. It's like the horror crux in Harry Potter.
1: Frederick's new book is called Anxious People and it's out September 8th here in the US. So make sure to check it out. Thank you so much for being with us on the pen Pod today, Frederick.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And now we turn to our CEO, Suzanne Nossel, for our weekly tough questions segment. And what a week it's been. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So uh, we got word Thursday morning that President Trump has decided not to participate in the next debate sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates. Um, His campaign manager said they'd hold a rally instead. Um, You know, this is an institution in U.S. presidential elections. And for a candidate to walk away from a debate, what does this say about, you know, the free exchange of ideas in a campaign season in the United States?
3: Well, it's unfortunate, you know, and and doing a virtual debate would not be unprecedented. Kennedy and Nixon uh, had a debate where they were not in the same room. So there's nothing sort of inherently wrong about this. And one wonders with so much Business, the UN General Assembly, congressional hearings—you know—happening in a virtual format. Why he would walk away from this? I mean, the reality is though politically, as of today, you know, it's—it's. You got to believe that holding more debates helps President Trump more than it does Vice President Joe Biden, just in terms of where the polls stand. And so, I wonder if this decision will hold. I think he. President Trump has a great incentive to sort of change the narrative. I do think for the American people, you know, it's hard to say that a reprise of an event like last week's debate between Trump and Joe Biden, you know, uh, that, that we're losing out if we don't get to see that spectacle again. On the other hand, this week we saw... Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, and Vice President Mike Tentz debating, you know, that was a substantive exchange. Uh, You know, there were some interruptions, but it didn't really get nasty. And they talked about a lot of issues. And, you know, one got some insight into their character. If there are any undecided voters out there, I think an exchange like that could make a difference. And it's, it's part of modeling civil discourse, which I think we have really lost sight of as a polity. You know, what we witness in the Congress is so vitriolic and stalemated. And so actually being able to see the president particularly kind of come back after the fiery exchange of last week and demonstrate that he's capable of a substantive give and take uh, and of of exhibiting the kind of decorum that you would expect in a discussion among presidential hopefuls yeah, I think that would be powerful for the country. I, I don't know that that's what we're going to get.
0: Right, yeah. And, and, of course, you could always change his mind. (laughs) Um, So turning to the president uh, himself, um, you know, we had his, of course, COVID diagnosis, uh, followed by a weekend of misleading and confusing briefings from his medical team. Um, It seems like we, at least at this stage, are, are no closer to knowing exactly how serious his condition was or might be. Why does the public have a right to know about the medical condition of a president. And what does it say about the credibility of the White House that we don't know whom or what to believe?
3: Look, the president of the United States, with the power that that individual holds, I mean, we're literally you're talking about whether the nuclear codes in the suitcase went with him to Walter Reed, which, uh, you know, I think we assume or we know that they did is a matter of grave, you know, and pressing interest to the public and that's why the president has a press pool that follows him wherever he goes and yet, you know, it's we're seeing those principles being flouted. I mean, this is an administration that from the beginning has denigrated the role of the press, has called the press the enemy of the American people, decried any unfavorable coverage as fake news. Yeah, we are suing the president and our, our lawsuit uh, continues to move forward, challenging his threats and acts of retaliation against the press. And, you know, what you see this weekend is just a complete flouting of those norms. I mean, when he took that um, spin around the Walter Reed in the SUV, the press corps was not even notified. So they weren't able to cover that. You had competing statements from white house doctors and staff about his condition we still don't know when the president took his last negative covid test you know when was he last tested before he was diagnosed and had tested positive they won't tell the press or the american people that and so it you know it's part of a pattern of obfuscation i think his efforts to discredit the press you know in this sense have been made To it intended to lay groundwork, you know, for a moment like this when he really is out to bamboozle. And we see it in relation to the election as well. All of these false claims about mail in ballots that are discredited time and time again, yet for his base, because they have been taught to discredit the discreditors, you know, those claims still stand. And I think it's the same thing in relation to his health. You know, what's Confounding, though, is like, let's face it, you know, he is seemingly back at work, uh, you know, on his feet. And it doesn't look for now like he's suffering terribly badly from this virus. And perhaps that's a temporary effect. And he's just at a certain stage of going through a disease that we know can be a roller coaster ride. But I do sort of think if he remains on that trajectory you know some of these questions are going to fall away what won't fall away and has also been obscured is the wider situation in relation to this outbreak that is now you know affecting so many in the white house in the congress and in the us military i mean this uh, and we don't know the extent of that we don't know how badly people are suffering you know they we just there was a report last night that there are maybe 10 or a dozen more cases than had previously been disclosed. And so, you know, that cover up and the implications and, you know, the potential for more serious consequences for people who get truly and lastingly ill, that remains.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, quickly uh, just to cover a, a, an executive order, and and I know this president obviously issues executive orders uh, quite regularly, but there was actually new attention on one that he had signed last month that was on, quote, combating sex and race discrimination. And it's since had this Ripple effect for race and bias trainings, and even on campuses, uh, there was a, a dust up about a group being reticent to screen the film Malcolm X on on a on a military academy campus. What what exactly is going on here with this executive order, and and why is it causing this sort of scramble?
3: Yeah, look, I think what they're trying to get at is some training and discussion groups going on in the federal government that, you know, are ideologically misaligned with this presidency. And, you know, I think that can be somewhat of a legitimate issue in certain contexts. I mean, there there are a whole range of ways to talk about issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And, you know, some may include, you know, a uh, historic critique of everything about, American history and the founding fathers and the flaws of the Constitution and our system of government, you know, you can see why in a federal agency that might not be the tack to take if people are left with the conclusion that, you know, all of the principles that you know, people swear allegiance to when they go into government, you know, really are full of holes and hollow. So I can see why There may be scope for some oversight of the messaging of those sorts of trainings and sessions, but this EO is outrageous. You know, it really is, it's censorious, it's a violation of the First Amendment rights of not just government employees, but everybody who is touched by the expression of institutions that rely on government funding. You know, it is an effort to dictate to them, you know, what ideas can and can't be taught. Critical race theory is excluded from discussion. I mean, this is clear viewpoint-based discrimination, which is, you know, sort of the foremost category of speech that the First Amendment uh, protects and, and, and a type of government intervention in the landscape of speech that the First Amendment absolutely rejects, and you know, watching these universities now scrambling to consider how they need to reconfigure trainings that go on, on on campus. You know, and particularly in a moment where we are dealing with this resurgent reckoning on systemic racism and you know rightful demands for transformation and education. This is a time when campuses need to be doubling down on these kinds of discussions. And yes, they should exercise judgment in doing so, but to have to follow the dictates of a new executive order that has struck fear in the hearts of administrators and made them worry, you know, with one misstep, they may lose all of their federal funding. That's very dangerous and chilling. And you know, if, if the president remains in office and this you know, goes forward, I think it will absolutely be subject to legal challenges. And it will be very important for officials and university leaders to stand up to some of its worst potential effects.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Suzanne, as always, appreciate you walking through these complex issues. Um, Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America, she's also author of Dare to Speak Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks a bunch, Suzanne. Thanks, (laughs) Stephen. And that's our episode for Friday, October 9th. Join us next week for The Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is The Pen Pod. See you Monday. Have a great weekend.